1: New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Maria Ryan, the author of the book Full Spectrum Dominance, Irregular Warfare and the War on Terror. Maria Ryan is an assistant professor of American history at the Department of American and Canadian Studies at the University of Nottingham. Her research interests are broadly in the field of post-Cold War U.S. foreign policy, in particular the development of neoconservatism, intellectuals and U.S. foreign policy, humanitarian interventionism, the Bush administration and the global war on terror, as well as the history of the CIA. She's written articles and book chapters on many of these topics, and her first book, Neoconservatism and the New American Century, was published in 2010. With Bevan Sewell, she co-edited Foreign Policy at the Periphery, the Shifting Margins of International Relations Since World War II, and she's also a former convener of the BISA U.S. Foreign Policy Working Group in the U.K. Maria, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Beth. Can you tell us a little bit more about you and how you became interested in writing this book?
0: I was finishing off my PhD, which was about neoconservatism and the Bush administration. And I remember reading a story in the New York Times about some U.S. special forces in Paraguay. And they had, I think, gone out and gotten drunk and they had, they would, had been arrested and it caused a kind of diplomatic incident between the U.S. and Paraguay. And I remember at the time thinking to myself, What was U.S. Special Forces doing in Paraguay? Why have they been posted there? And so I started to try and look into this. And um, honestly, I don't have the answer now as to what U.S. forces were doing in Paraguay. But I did start to discover that the Bush administration had been deploying special operations forces into a number of other areas of the world under the auspices of what it was then calling the global war on terror. And so I became interested in these kind of smaller, what I now call peripheral fronts of the war on terror. Um, and I identified three in this project, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, Georgia, and the Philippines. And that's really how the book came about.
1: So you're a professor of history. And this book is really looking at the last 20 years or so of American military actions and strategy. Right. Right. What are some of the benefits and limitations of researching
0: such recent history? You are right that this is primarily a work of history. And I do, although my work is very contemporary, I do consider myself to be a historian, really, in in the sense that my method is to go and look for as many primary sources as I can find, piece them together tell the story and uh, explain why this is important and, and what we need to learn from it. But most historians, I think, don't really accept or certainly the idea that you can write contemporary history is quite sort of controversial because most historians are writing about um, a period that was at least 30 years ago. And so there have been a lot of documents released that they use for their research. And if you ask uh, most historians whether it's possible to write a contemporary history, they'll probably say, no, of course not, because none of the documents have been released. And so it is true that you don't have the same kind of Documentary evidence as someone who is working on a project that's much older. And I I say 30 years because a lot of government documentation, uh, I think in the US but certainly in the UK, is released after 30 years. So inevitably it is incomplete to a certain extent. But at the same time, I really strongly believe that the internet has revolutionized the possibilities for the study of contemporary history because there is just so much unclassified material. Um, that no one ever reads that is available online, and that actually if if you do use this material, you really can make I think a substantive new contribution to the debate in this area that I think in the pre internet days just wouldn 't have been possible, and of course, this material would have existed then, but there was just no way to access it before you know the the internet, so I think that 's really kind of for me made the study of contemporary history possible and you know i hope that as more records are released in time other scholars will be able to kind of build on 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 what i what i've written in this book uh, and take it further
1: could you unpack the title of the book a little bit for us explaining what irregular warfare is and and what this full spectrum dominance concept is
0: well the phrase full spectrum dominance it comes from the 2004 national military strategy And the spectrum refers to the spectrum of conflict and full spectrum dominance was a phrase uh, that the Pentagon used uh, to describe its aspiration to dominate the whole spectrum of conflict from conventional warfare right through to irregular warfare. So all the different types of warfare, The, the Pentagon wanted to be strong enough to win against any adversary, however, they chose to fight against the U.S., So full spectrum dominance really was this aspiration to be stronger than any conventional adversary and also stronger than any irregular adversary that might attack the U.S.
1: And how does that connect to irregular warfare?
0: Irregular warfare was kind of like, I guess, the Achilles heel of the U.S. military until the early 21st century, probably uh, until the War on Terror, the US hadn't really fought an irregular war since the Vietnam War. So that was a war against guerrilla insurgents. It wasn't a conventional war. And that war obviously didn't go well for the military. It was quite a kind of traumatic um, experience for the US military. And the result of that was that the military really kind of turned away from irregular warfare and decided instead to focus on its preferred model of conventional interstate conflict and to excel in that area. And it really kind of expunged irregular warfare from the military curriculum and focused on um, beating the Soviet Union in Central Europe. That was kind of the, the preferred model of warfare. And so the 9-11 attack was really disruptive in this respect, because I think it made uh, senior US policymakers realise that actually we can be the most powerful, we can have the most powerful conventional military forces in the world, but they will be of no use if we're attacked by an unconventional and irregular adversary as the US was on 9-11. And so that attack, I argue in this book, was the catalyst for senior policymakers to turn towards developing irregular methods of warfare and to embracing the idea that the U.S. had to be strong, not just in terms of fighting conventional wars, but it also had to have the capability to fight and win an irregular war as well. And so
1: the book examines that shift, right, in in U.S. military strategy and chronologically moves through developments that really begin in earnest with Donald Rumsfeld. Can you talk about his thought development and why he's so central
0: to this story? Right. He, he is really central. And I do see him as the key figure really in terms of promoting the idea of irregular warfare at a bureaucratic level and at a policy level in, in the Bush administration. And al- although I'm quite critical of, of Rumsfeld, I, I do think that he had, he was quite foresighted in terms of the way that he viewed international security in the 21st century, even before 9-11, you can see Rumsfeld saying, actually, you know what, globalization has really empowered non-state actors in new ways. They might use asymmetric warfare. They could attack us in ways that we are not expecting. We should be prepared for surprise. And it's not enough for us to only have these uh, strengths in conventional warfare, actually we need to start thinking about other ways that adversaries could actually attack us. And he was hinting at this kind of thing even even before 9-11, but I think the 9-11 attack was really the catalyst for him to to develop ideas about uh, irregular warfare, about what it meant to fight an irregular war, about how you actually prosecuted an irregular war, and, and trying to actually engage the whole of the U.S. government and encourage not just the Department of Defense and, and the military, but also to try to encourage the Department of State and the U.S. Agency for International Development to work towards trying to support this this kind of warfare. And I think it's interesting that
1: the book makes that point, right, that 9-11 was not the origin of this strategic pivot towards irregular warfare, but confirmation of of a development of thought. Do you think that distinction is important from a an
0: historical analysis? I do think it's important. I mean, I, I don't want to suggest that the U.S. was inevitably going to start thinking about irregular warfare, even if 9-11 haven't, hadn't occurred. I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think if you look at the documents, what you see is that Rumsfeld is the first person to start saying, actually, you know, we could be attacked in asymmetric ways. We might, we might need to start thinking about developing other kinds of defense capabilities. But I don't necessarily think that we would have seen the entire government mobilized towards fighting this type of warfare had it not been for 9-11. I I do think that was a really catalyzing moment um, that actually meant that people who'd been schooled during the Cold War, people like Condoleezza Rice and, and Colin Powell, even they Um, after 9-11, had to start thinking about the way that international security had changed.
1: And the book looks at the global war on terror and focuses in particular on the peripheral areas you mentioned before, outside of the more well-covered areas of Afghanistan and Iraq. Why did you choose to look at the Philippines, Africa, and Georgia, as opposed to those more well-known areas?
0: Initially, I became interested, uh, as I said earlier, in the way that the Bush administration was deploying special operations forces around the world under the auspices of counterterrorism and the global war on terror. But nobody was really focusing on that. Everyone was just focusing on uh, Afghanistan and on Iraq. And so I really just started to wonder, you know, wh- what 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 does the war on terror mean in these other locations? How similar is it to what's going on in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq? And I wanted to get a better sense of the Bush administration's global strategy, not just what it was doing uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I was following these Special forces deployments. And this is what really led me to those peripheral fronts of the war on terror. These were the places that I noticed that the Bush administration was really deploying um, special forces uh, more than anywhere else uh, across sub Saharan Africa, in Georgia and the Caspian Sea region, and in the Philippines as well. And I think that's, you know, there are various reasons why those areas of the world became fronts in the war on terror. I think uh, what I argue in the book is that. Usually the administration was able to identify some kind of other geopolitical interest in this region, in these regions that it believed would be threatened by the possible emergence of of terrorism in these areas.
1: So in the Philippines in particular, you mentioned the government was a responsive partner, but the U.S. still had limited effectiveness in their operations there. Can you talk more about what you
0: observed in that case? The Philippines is a really interesting case because what I think you see there is that the US was really kind of invited in. um, There was a meeting of minds really between the Bush administration and the Arroyo government in the Philippines. So sometimes critics of US foreign policy tend to caricature it a little bit as being excessively unilateral. And, and I think it can be, but I, but I also think there are other cases where you see that that actually the US is able to co-opt another country quite effectively and it's kind of invited into another country. And I, I really think that's what happened in the case of the Philippines because the government there was very pro-American. It was facing an insurgency in the southern Philippine islands, which has a very long history, really goes back to the Spanish colonial time when Spain failed to conquer and occupy the whole of the Philippines archipelago and those southern islands um, remained Muslim and they are to this day and there's there's been a, an ongoing separatist conflict there for a long time and there is in particular uh, a violent Islamist group there called the Abu Sayaf Group that the Arroyo administration and successive Philippine administrations had been trying to quell really for a long time. And they were really eager to have U.S. help to do this. And after 9-11, I think the Philippine government really quite successfully portrayed its struggle against the Abu Sayaf Group as another front in the global war on terror. And so it really kind of corresponded with what the Bush administration was doing in the world at that time, I think. And the Philippines has always been a kind of geopolitically important location for the US. Obviously, it used to be an American territory uh, until the Second World War uh, or the end of the Second World War. And it's traditionally the US has had bases in the Philippines, but they were closed down in the early 1990s. But the Pentagon was very keen to kind of reassert a military presence in in the Philippines because it's a good springboard to projecting power into the East Asian region, really. So there was very much a meeting of minds, I think, between the Arroyo administration and the Bush administration. You also talk about sub-Saharan Africa, and
1: the developments there are pretty striking to include the creation of the United States African Command during this period, What stood out from your research in terms of U.S. involvement in Africa during this period of time?
0: I think what you see in this period of time is really the militarization of U.S. foreign policy towards Africa. Uh, After what happened in Somalia in 1993, I think the U.S. kind of withdrew from Africa. There was a sense that uh, we don't really have any interests here. We don't necessarily want to intervene here. There are various humanitarian catastrophes going on, but it's not in our interest to intervene. But what you really see after 9-11 is the deployment of special forces right across the kind of central belt of Africa from from the Horn of Africa uh, in the east through to the Gulf of Guinea in the west. You see the militarization of waters around the Gulf of Guinea because of fears of terrorism and piracy and the fact that this is uh, becoming an important energy producing region. And with the establishment of AFRICOM, I think the way that was interpreted by many African countries was, oh, US foreign policy is being led by the military in Africa. And I think the Bush administration kind of made a mistake in not consulting African partners about the establishment of AFRICOM, or even really telling them that they were going to be establishing this military command uh, structure for Africa. And so I think the impression that that gave, and perhaps it was inadvertent, but the impression that it gave was that. U.S. policy towards Africa was really becoming quite militarized.
1: In the case of Georgia, again, we have so much happening in this area to include the, the push for NATO membership and its strategic location for oil pipelines. Can you tell us about what you found in that
0: region? This was actually my favorite part of the book to research because I just learned so much and I hadn't understood before just how critical Georgia was as as a US partner. And the reason it was so critical is because um, the Clinton administration uh, and the Bush administration was very keen for countries around the Caspian Sea, the littoral countries that could export oil from the Caspian. Uh, It was very keen to encourage that. And there were only a couple of different possible routes for a pipeline taking oil out of the Caspian Sea and through to Europe. One of them was to go through Iran, and obviously that was not uh, acceptable politically, not just to the US, but I think to other Western countries like the UK as well, because, of course, if you host an oil pipeline, that gives you some kind of leverage, I guess, over other countries that might be dependent on the oil that's going through that pipeline. So um, certainly the US didn't want oil from the Caspian Sea to be going through Iran. The other alternative was to go to have a pipeline that went through Russia, And although the Clinton administration had quite good relations with Russia initially in the early 90s, things did really begin to sour, I think, between the US and Russia. The reform process was kind of going wrong in Russia. So there was a kind of a lack of trust that developed there. And so the only possible alternative for a pipeline bringing oil from the Caspian Sea through to the Mediterranean was to go through Georgia. It was literally the only other possibility for this pipeline route. And the Clinton and Bush administrations were very keen and expended a lot of diplomatic and political energy in cultivating close ties with the Georgian government in the late 1990s and and the early 2000s, because they were so keen to bring this oil from the Caspian Sea to the global market, uh, to bring it out to Europe. But the only politically acceptable option the pipeline route for them was to go through Georgia. And so Georgia actually became one of the top five recipients of US foreign military financing in the late 1990s. It was also a very pro-American government because most Georgians are very pro-American because they have very bad memories of the Soviet Union. They were um, incorporated into the Soviet Union against their will. So there's a lot of anti-Russian feeling. Georgians are very keen to orient themselves towards the West. So again, there was a kind of meeting of minds here, I think, between the Georgian government and and the Bush administration.
1: And so in all three of these cases, you just describe some of these strategic and historical interactions between the US and these governments, yet they became part of the global war on terror, these campaigns did. Was it different in each case? Or do you think that that was an appropriate use of that kind of mantra, global war on terror? Or is it strategic ends by by another name?
0: So there's two parts to the question there. I think the first one is, Um, why did these states become part of the global war on terror? And then is it kind of useful or appropriate to use that phrase to refer to them, really? So to answer the first question, I think all three of these areas had something in common for the Bush administration. Uh, The Bush administration believed, rightly or wrongly, that there were weak states in, in each of these areas. So weak and failing states across Africa. In Georgia, there was an area called the Pankisi Gorge, uh, which was not under the control of the central government. In the Philippines, you had the insurgency against the government in Manila, uh, the insurgency being based in, in the southern Philippine islands. And the concern that the Bush administration had after 9-11, they, they looked back at what had happened in Afghanistan, where you had this uh, weak state that had been penetrated by a terrorist network. And they were a uh, afraid that these areas that were not really under the control of the central government in Georgia and in the Philippines could potentially be penetrated by al-Qaeda, and that across um, sub-Saharan Africa, you had all of these weak states with porous borders, poor security, and that again, this area could become a kind of incubator, if you like, for Islamist terrorism. So I think this concept of weak states is, is really key to explaining why these areas became important to the Bush administration, why they were concerned that terrorism could um, incubate, if you like, in, in these areas. And then the second part of your question is whether it's useful to think of them all as fronts in a global war on terror And I don't think it is useful, actually. I mean, I use this phrase a lot, the global war on terror, because I'm trying to get into the mindset of the Bush administration. But I don't think it's a useful way to think about these three areas, because I think it encourages us to think that actually these three areas have a lot in common, when actually I think they're all very different. Each of these countries and regions has its own unique Politics, its own unique circumstances. I think wherever you see political violence, there's always a unique explanation to explain why it's happening in country X or country Y or country Z. And I think that what the Bush administration did was it it basically developed a kind of generic, non specific framework for intervening in weak states that it believed would prevent the emergence of terrorism in these areas or counter existing terrorism in these areas. But actually, the the framework for intervention, I think, was very general. It was very generic. It didn't deal with the specifics of the unique circumstances of, of each case.
1: So you make this argument that the global war on terror is based on an oversimplification of the cause of terrorism and therefore a faulty assumption on how to eliminate it and how is the us's diagnosis of ungoverned spaces and failing states as the cause of terrorism potentially not helpful to us security goals
0: i think the philippines is is a is a good example the separatist conflict in the philippines really goes back to the 15th century and it's based on the fact that the southern Philippines was never conquered by the Spanish. So there's quite a different kind of culture there. Politics is quite different. The religion is different. Most of the Philippines is Christian and the South is, is Islamic. And so I don't think you can really understand what's going on there without understanding that unique history that that part of the world has. So it's not necessarily helpful to say, "Ah, this is just another front in our war on terror. What happened to us on 9-11? That's the same thing that's happening in the Philippines, which is the same thing that's happening in sub-Saharan Africa, and it's the same thing that's happening in uh, Georgia. In the Georgian case, it's true that there was an area, the Pankisi Gorge, that was not under the control of the central government, but it was really being used... By uh, not so much by Islamists connected to Osama bin Laden, but by fighters who were involved in the Chechen War, Chechnya is um, has a border with Georgia, and some of the Chechen fighters were fleeing the Russians, going over the border into Georgia and kind of regrouping there in the Pankisi Gorge and then going back into Chechnya to fight. So you really need to understand the specific local circumstances, I think if you want to know what the best thing to do is, um, you know, how to try and solve this conflict. And it's not necessarily helpful to to just think of it purely as one front in the global war on terror.
1: I wanted to read from your conclusion where you say, Washington's own geopolitical narrative, the global war on terror, benefited extremists like bin Laden, who actively sought a confrontation and wanted the United States to overreact and overreach. And instead, the U.S. and its allies needed to disaggregate local political questions from the issue of global Islam and address the indigenous root causes of instability and peripheral regions separately. I guess my question to you is, these approaches that you just talked about, does it do more harm by playing into potential extremist narratives?
0: You're quite right. I think somebody like bin Laden would be quite glad to have the U.S. co-opt conflicts in the Philippines and in Georgia and across Africa, because he wanted to wage a global war against the United States. And so in a way, by constructing this global narrative, the U.S. was kind of helping bin Laden in a way. Throughout the book, you also talk about the role of the
1: Department of State and USAID, In particular, as U.S. strategy shifted and those agencies were utilized to offer non-kinetic type responses. And I guess what's important to understand about the changing role of those organizations and how it relates to irregular warfare outside of just DOD?
0: I guess irregular warfare is different to conventional warfare because the focus of operations is... The population of the country it's not so much about um, physically exerting control over the territory it's about winning uh, the hearts and minds of of the population and so that means that irregular warfare is not just about using military power it's also about it also has to have an economic dimension an ideological dimension a political dimension And so the military can't wage that kind of warfare all by itself. Irregular warfare is traditionally thought of as being interagency or a whole of government approach to warfare because you can't rely just on military power because you're trying to win people's hearts and minds. And so that means that you need to the, the Department of Defense needs to work with the Department of State, which needs to work with the U.S. Agency for International Development and you know other departments and agencies as well that might contribute to this much more holistic type of warfare, irregular warfare in, in many respects. S- some of the tactics, I think, can appear like they are a kind of liberal or humanitarian endeavor. It can even sometimes, I think, resemble a form of nation building. But I think it's a mistake to, to view it that way. I think when uh, these tactics are pursued as part of an irregular warfare strategy, they're not being pursued necessarily for humanitarian purposes, or that isn't the priority anyway. They are being securitized and used as tactics of warfare. But because of the nature of irregular warfare, it's something that's more holistic. You have to win hearts and minds it's something that the military can't do just by itself. And so what you see, I think, in the Bush years is that the State Department in particular and the US Agency for International Development start to kind of reorient themselves uh, around the concept of waging an irregular warfare and around what we call the non-kinetic aspects of irregular warfare, the non-military aspects of irregular warfare that, that are an extremely important part of that type of conflict.
1: And that relates to this trend that you mention in the book, um, the movement towards a whole-of-government approach. Can you talk about what that means? And did you see that impacting policy as it relates to your
0: study? I did. I mean, I I think what you see in these campaigns in the Philippines in particular, and and also across sub-Saharan Africa, less so in Georgia, what you see is that public diplomacy... Uh, propaganda is a really integral part of the conflict. And you see the military, uh, the general purpose forces, not special forces, but even general purpose forces being taught to conduct this kind of non-kinetic warfare. They can't do it all by themselves. That's why they need the State Department. They need the U.S. Agency for International Development. Um, But what you begin to see is that the military takes on more of this kind of work, that they start sending liaison officers to work with the Agency for International Development and vice versa. And the, the State Department and USAID really begin to orient themselves towards addressing security issues associated with weak and failing states because the Bush administration's view was that weak and failing states are really the incubators of terrorism. This is the kind of underlying cause of terrorism. So I think what you see is a kind of a very overt repositioning of these civilian agencies around a securitized agenda that, that really is kind of dictated by the military. And of course, I think it's it's always been true that um, the different agencies have historically kind of worked together. But, but I just think it's particularly noticeable the way that you see these civilian agencies really beginning to reorient around uh, what is really a security agenda.
1: So we've talked a lot about President Bush, but you also look at these policies through the presidency of Barack Obama, Is there anything that surprised you in terms of contrasts or similarities between these two administrations?
0: Well, what I found really noticeable was that there was a lot of intellectual and policy continuity between the two administrations, not necessarily always operational continuity, but uh, intellectual and policy continuity. So for example, Obama accepted First of all, the, the notion that globalization had fundamentally changed the nature of international security in the 21st century. He also accepted the Bush administration's contention that weak and failing states were the kind of underlying cause of uh, terrorism around the world. And I was quite surprised to see that there was really no questioning at all of, of, of those two premises that had developed in the Bush years. Where I think Obama differed was that he was more risk-averse than Bush and he was less inclined to actually use these capabilities that had been developed in the Bush years. I think he continued to develop capabilities in irregular warfare and he didn't want the US military to go back to just fighting conventional wars but he also i think realized that the public had become quite war weary he was a more he had a more kind of restrained vision of US leadership US hegemony in the world and he was just less inclined to actually use these capabilities but he did accept the kind of fundamental premise of bush's approach to terrorism which was globalization has changed the character of international security in the 21st century and weak states are you know the fundamental underlying cause of terrorism
1: and i know the scope of your book was really those two administrations but have you looked even more recently it seems that one could argue that this is a major strategic change in in us policy and military action which originated with one administration and you see it continue through another administration of a different party, do you believe this is an actual major realignment that we have witnessed in recent history that will continue to stand?
0: I think that we will still continue to see the U.S. military maintain some capabilities in irregular warfare. And I think the reason is because it really seems to me that the idea that globalization has changed international conflict to some extent, has really kind of lodged intellectually, I think, with the military uh, and with senior U.S. officials. And so I think they do believe that it's necessary to have some kind of irregular warfare capability in order to fight against globalized transnational non-state actors. So as long as those kinds of non-state actors exist, I think you'll see the maintenance of some kind of uh, capability to fight irregular wars. But I do think that this current administration has very much elevated nation states in its national security planning. And and if you look at the Trump administration's national security strategy, its national military strategy, it does state very clearly that they believe that China and uh, Russia are the principal national security threats um, to the US in the 21st century. Mike Pompeo came to London for a couple of days last week and I went to see him talk and he said that uh, the Chinese Communist Party is the central threat of our time. So I think this administration has very clearly indicated that it considers the principal threats to be nation states and not transnational terrorist networks. And I think that that's the the real difference I see with the Trump administration. I think even in the Obama years, um, people were concerned about China and in in the Bush years, people were concerned about China. But I don't think they saw China as... The principal national security threat to the US. I think terrorism was seen as the number one challenge, but I don't think that's the case anymore.
1: Are there any lessons you think we can learn from our recent history in terms of countering terrorism and preparing for future threats?
0: One of the things that I argue in the book is that these interventions in the peripheral regions, there isn't really much evidence that they have worked. And in some cases, two in particular, I think there is evidence to suggest that the the pro- that, that terrorism has gotten even worse in these regions. I mean, in, in the Philippines, for example, the number of attacks by the Abu Sayyaf group really went up while the US campaign, the intervention was ongoing there. Uh, in 2002, for example, there were 17 attacks by the Abu Sayyaf group. And in 2016, there were 74. So that doesn't really suggest that this kind of intervention actually works. Um, Similarly, in Africa, the U.S. intervention across sub-Saharan Africa began really in kind of late 2001, early 2002. But it didn't it wasn't really able to prevent the emergence of a number of al-Qaeda franchises like al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Al-Shabaab in in Somalia, uh, that group actually seems to have been in some ways provoked, I think, by by U.S. intervention. So I think you know, the the record suggests that this this kind of approach to countering terrorism just just doesn't work. And I, and I think, and I argue in the book, that it's because it's too generic; it doesn't take account of the specific circumstances of each case.
1: Well, Maria, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go. Could you tell us about what you're working on now or what you have coming up next?
0: Well, I do have a new project that I am at the very, very beginning stages of, but I haven't done a lot of work on it yet. I'm interested in how the US uh, engages in what we might think of as more peripheral regions of the world. So I've I've looked at the peripheral theaters of the war on terror, but I also would like to do some work on the Bush administration and, and Latin America. Which hasn't received a lot of attention yet, really, from the scholars. And in particular, I want to look at um, the U.S. intervention in Venezuela in the 21st century. There was a kind of campaign of, I think, I think you might call it political warfare, started uh, under George W. Bush. I think to try to destabilize the government of uh, Hugo Chavez, which is a kind of controversial government, in uh, left-leaning government in Venezuela. And so, I'm really interested in why the US intervened in Venezuela, in the kinds of tactics that it used. I think um, my initial impression is that you see a kind of low intensity warfare there as well. So there's a long history of US intervention in in Latin America. So uh, I'm really interested to, to research this more contemporary case.
1: Well, best of luck with that effort. And thank you for being on the show today.
0: Thank you for having me, Beth.
1: Full spectrum dominance, irregular warfare and the war on terror by Maria Ryan is available now from Stanford University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.